0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Adequately Informed podcast for the new Monday, September 28th. Back to Mondays now. My name's Joe Hicks.
1: And mine, even on a Monday, is Evan Kelly.
0: And Evan Kelly, what are we here to do
1: today? Well, Joe, today I think we're just going to have a chat. You know, we're, we're, we're not going to go on our long-winded rants about whatever things exist. We're just going to have a little talky-talk. But doing so, we're going to still try to make sure that we're considering things from a variety of angles and engaging in good faith discourse, trying to keep ourselves and our listeners adequately informed.
0: You know, we're trying to be, we're, we're trying to bring you the conversations that we had in wendy's in <laughs> high school that specifically on the galesburg hours. wendy's yes has it's to important
1: be. for people to know that joe and i have both lived several locations all throughout the midwest and neither of us has ever found a wendy's as good as the galesburg wendy's
0: galesburg wendy's best wendy's i think this is the conversation but um <laughs> We are not on the Ivory Tower. We know other things. Other people can have viewpoints. Blah 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 blah. Um <laughs> Yada yada dismissive. Oh our core thing. Eh. <laughs> but yeah. So Evan, do you do you have a uh do you have a jumping off point? You know? This, yeah, the, I, I, we're doing a looser format today. Um
1: I do no, want to chat about movies. I do because what's going on uh with movies. You know, uh, they're reopening. A lot of theaters around the nation are reopening, including here in my neck of the woods. And I I know that Galesburg is reopening as well. Um, Mm. But I'm not going back. I don't feel ready. I feel like I'm not trying to shame anyone who is going to the movies or resuming social activity because people need social activity. But for for my decisions, I'm choosing to see people in smaller groups so that I don't have to feel bad about hanging out with friends. But the trade off is then that I, I feel like I got to wait a little bit longer before I go back into a theater setting.
0: Yeah, that is a tough call. It is interesting. uh, Like around here, at least in Galesburg right now, it, it, it almost feels like the pandemic isn't happening. Like, you know, people will wear masks where they're out in public and it's mandated by the government, but it's not super enforced. And it's, I don't know, like, I, you know, this is somewhat bad of me, but I was like at a bar last night and, you know, there weren't a ton of people there. You know, it was kind of that a bunch of people had been out on like a back patio. We were sitting in the, inside and there weren't too many people so it was fine and you know kind of felt fine but then all of a sudden all the people from the back patio came into the indoor bar area and it was like whoa <laughs> and crowded uh, now. and none of them are sitting at tables with with their masks off they're just standing around doing whatever bar stuff with their masks off and you know Maybe in the grand scheme of things with, you know, an airborne illness being transmitted the way it is, it doesn't make a whole lot of a difference whether they're sitting at the table with the mask off or standing up with the mask off. But it was kind of like, hey, guys, um this is like the, the way it's supposed to be. But then it was also like the kind of more affluent people of town. So... <laughs>
1: Well, I know there was this one case study, and I can't remember where it came from, but they were able to do some pretty good contact tracing, and they found that even in a socially distanced restaurant, a group with COVID spread it three tables over. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I think yeah. what what I've been hearing is that we're finding more and more that six feet you know it was a good guideline for when we just needed something but it turns out that really what matters more is the the type of space and the ventilation so outdoors closer than six feet probably isn't that high of a risk but indoors and depending on the ventilation you actually end up with needing more than six feet in a lot of cases i'm curious joe do you know who the mayor of galesburg is john pritchard and he is—he's Republican, I assume. I don't know.
0: There was a okay. uh, there was a re- recent spat where um, he wouldn't acknowledge that systemic racism exists. I don't know how that came about, um, but it seemed to be a thing.
1: <laughs> hmm. Yeah. Um. Let's try to find out.
0: Well, and then
1: I went to Knox College.
0: Yeah. Good. I think he's also part of, like, a historically moneyed family of the town. Mm. So he can... Because in Galesburg, at least from what I can tell, the mayor is not, like, a a full-time professional job. It is an elected office, but the... uh, Well,
1: it's a city uh, manager government, right? Well,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. So the... Like it, it's run, the city is run by the city council, which has aldermen from each district, and then the mayor acts like the an extra alderman, but from the whole town. So everybody elects the one mayor as one vote, but then each alderman has you know their one vote as well. Mm-hmm. So. Uh I think that's how it works. Of course, you know, it's interesting the the governments that matter most towards, you know, our day-to-day lives, we often know the least about. Yeah. Um and it's hard to find anything out about it like you have to go and actually ask people or or talk with them or, you know, stuff like that. You can't just like there there is no Wikipedia page that, you know, in detail describes the whole procedure and authority of the Gelsberg governmental structure there, there mm-hmm. just isn't.
1: So, yeah. So, cause it's just interesting to me, the contrast, because here in Indy, it really feels like people do take it seriously. I mean, the worst you get is you still see some people who don't have the mask over their nose, but you go to like a grocery store or a restaurant or something, and it is like 100% of people are wearing masks. And that's even with Holcomb as a Republican governor, who I, I think has done a really good job with COVID response. He's taken mm-hmm. it seriously, and he's he's been evidence-based in his response. And he has he's done a mask mandate, although he is moving us to, to stage five in our reopening plan, yeah. so that might go away soon. Um, but then- also, because I, I we live kind of right on the border of Indianapolis and Fishers. And so Indianapolis is a big blue town and Fisher's is a big red town. But in both places, it seems like the the mayors have also enforced even stronger types of mandates than, than what's being done at the state level. So I don't know, it's, it's weird that Indiana feels like a place where there's like a really strong bipartisan response. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm
1: well, but it's about, coming at a political let's put it, go ahead.
0: Let's put it this way. I get you know for the most part like during the day um like when I go out in public, I see it happening but but last night was also like Friday night of mm. Friday night of the people who decide they're willing to go to bars and restaurants and like be out. So that's like a different subset of people.
1: That's um, true. That is true. And it's also is...
0: like at my my new job, like um, like the people when they're there, they don't seem to take it like like at work. Nobody's like wearing a mask. And maybe I shouldn't, you know, new job. But oh, well, I'm not disclosing <laughs> who they are, but. It's just kind of like, eh, you know, I came in wearing a mask and then like not too long after I stopped because nobody else was. And, you know, social social cohesion is a hell of a drug. Um,
1: Yeah, it is. And sometimes, you know, going against the norms can have consequences, be they social or political, because like I said, for for someone who's a more liberal minded voter than me. I've been really pleased with Holcomb's strong response here in Indiana, but sort of the uh, (laughs) more radical conservative base is sort of in an uprising right now to the point where last week the polling for the governor's race had Holcomb at 36, the Democratic challenger woody myers at 30 and a libertarian donald rainwater is polling at 24 oh, percent for the wow. statewide gubernatorial election now the analysis i've read thinks that it is just bluster and that he's going to struggle to hit double digits on election day but still like that's that's kind of remarkable that you have a a at least in the polling a legitimate three-party race for a strong red governor's office
0: yeah that's there's a uh Illinois there's a lot of like I, I don't I don't think it says this but you know it's kind of like fuck Pritzker um, <laughs> it, or kick Pritzker or some, something along those lines somebody made Perksker. a big, yeah, I get big it. thing of yard signs and people were like yeah that, that guy telling me how to live my life wanted to try and save me I don't need saving I'll figure it out <sighs> I mean, well, that's, because it's about your a your liberty, not Joe. A good faith, but you know,
1: <laughs> Joe, um, you you have exactly um, ten rights mm-hmm. that are called the Bill of Rights, and the government cannot make any other laws. That's all.
0: So even though one right where the rights that are not in the Bill of Rights are my rights, the Tenth nope. Amendment. No. Oh, okay.
1: Really just the first two amendments. That's what we like.
0: Okay. And then, you know, I, I've I've thought really hard about it. And I think the amendment that is most sacred to the American populace is the Third Amendment.
1: Is that the one about uh, quartering soldiers? Yes. In peacetime?
0: And it's our most sacred because there is no disagreement about it. It is sacrosanct. There has been no litigation about it. We don't house quarters in citizens houses. We take it very seriously. You know, it is our most sacred amendment. Um, (laughs) You know, it, it is the water that we swim in of not housing our soldiers in private citizens houses.
1: Okay, but I do think there's, there is one enumerated right that we don't talk about enough, but I think it is just as sacred, and that mm-hmm. is the right to violate the terms of service for a social media platform with impunity. Mm-hmm. Facebook That's- cannot establish any rules about what is published on its platform, and if you spread false information, you cannot be taken down, even if you voluntarily agree to submit to those terms of service. That is your most, most sacred right.
0: I also like that written into the Constitution that you can bring a civil lawsuit towards anyone for damages greater than $20. (laughs) Like, there is a specific dollar amount written into the Bill of Rights of a damages amount that you can seek litigation over now has it been
1: adjusted for inflation
0: no not at all it was original tax twenty dollars now i don't think anyone out there is doing you know seeking damages on things that are less than uh inflation adjusted amounts of $20 from like 1787 but you know even even with inflation adjusted dollars i mean what maybe it would be what $1000 maybe that's i'm just throwing a number out there but not too many so mine- people my inflation damages.
1: calculator that I go to can only go back as far as 1913, and even yeah. starting in 1913, the prices adjusted to 525 dollars. So well, you know, and, but knows? there,
0: it. Who knows? But also, for much of the 19th century, thanks to a very strict gold standard, there there was, wasn't a lot
1: of inflation.
0: No, not at all. Um, from my understanding, the it the price of gold was pretty well established and there wasn't any inflation for a good period of american history um so that's so let's that's call it
1: 525 thing. you can you can <laughs> sue somebody for $525
0: well but it's still the same thing in the constitution so i like the idea that i have the right to seek damages Over in court in, you know, in these courts that we put up as a society for a matter of $30, (laughs) like get a lawyer go. And you know, it's interesting. Like, it seems like a lot of, I don't know, American law or those like early ideals were were either exercised more in the past or, you know, is that kind of, like, small world, small democracy where you could, like, do that? Like, you know, I just think about how backed up the courts are today where apparently one of our rights is to a speedy trial. <laughs> but we don't have, you know, we char you know, enough... Cases that need to go to trial don't go to trial. They get settled. But even then, if they do go to trial, it's not speedy. Mm -hmm. Um, Or, you know, you're dissuaded to do it because it's not speedy. Whereas, you know, like I remember uh, there was some rapper who got in trouble in like Sweden because he like punched a guy or something got into a tussle and there was like a big freak out and we're like people were like oh i gotta get him out and all this stuff and then trump was like i'm gonna talk to the swedish ambassador and the swedish ambassador is like that's not how justice works in sweden um (laughs) but like the guy had his trial within like a week and he had been in jail that whole time and then his punishment was equal to the amount of time he had spent in jail so he was basically free after that Mm
1: -hmm, time served
0: yeah and I couldn't help but think like wait why, why don't we have that like it just seems like for so many things that go to trial it just takes one forever to get there two the punishments are way too harsh and three nobody's like really better off you know
1: mm-hmm. yeah i mean i couldn't even begin to articulate how to start untangling it all because i, I think that you have to have a pretty intimate knowledge of the court system to really yeah. understand the details but yeah even even outsiders like you and me joe can tell that yeah, the 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 gears grind pretty slowly, yeah well and it's
0: also like thanks to the United States decentralized nature uh decentralized nature of government we so much stuff is left up to local governments and then even like state governments and it just seems like a very weird proposition to me like you know i'm sure it came out of practical effects you know like the united states was so large that you know you know at its founding that you know the technology to have a centralized government wasn't too great especially Mm -hmm. since everyone was so dispersed like You know, in a country, in the countries of Europe, everything's very dense, so it could be a little bit easier to do things. But even then, they, you know, they had their own issues.
1: Yeah, that's something that came up in The Good Citizen by Michael Shudson is that without the infrastructure yet in place, like even democratic institutions were really tough to establish. mm -hmm. So, for example, in, in one of the states or colonies, I think it was Virginia, they had like a sort of state assembly, but they just stuck it in like the Capitol. And then the places that were far away from the Capitol didn't even bother to send delegations that they were entitled to because it just took too fucking long to travel.
0: Right. So maybe the United States model of governance is like, was good as good for reaching the ideals of democracy at a time when communication and transportation were, you know, really hard to do over distances and, um, you know, people were spread out pretty far. But then, you know, in the modern era where communication and transportation and all that kind of stuff aren't big issues and there's more people, it almost seems like leaving it up to, a you know all yeah essentially all these field operations <laughs> going on um, it, it, it's it, it may not be ideal because like there are only so many people in society who are like good and capable at like running governments and you know performing the functions of it And, you know, the more individual governments that you have that have to do essentially the same task over many different populations may not be the most efficient use of resources.
1: Yeah, but I I know this isn't exactly the point of what you were saying, but I do uh, really agree with that idea that. Uh, being able to run a government is kind of a skill or even a talent that some people can have and some people don't. And so that's why um, I'm always really wary about term limits for Congress, because I, I think we are more or less in agreement on this, that there's a lot of potentially negative consequences for that. But one of the chief among them being, it takes time to build up the skill to be an effective legislator. And you don't want to rip people out of office who have finally done well just to put somebody new in there so that you have to start the process all over again.
0: I mean, basically, if you're for term limits, you don't want... I mean, I guess the charitable view of it is that you don't want any individual to get too much power, like amass too much power over their time and then be able to, I don't know, be... Be tyrannical or something. I don't know. Which is
1: why it makes sense for the office of the president, but it always feels like there. There's kind of two main strains of the term limit call that I hear. One is just more personality driven. Like, oh gosh, we got. If we had term limits, Mitch McConnell would be out. As if, and I mean, Mitch McConnell is a unique figure in American politics. But I think that it's kind of naive to assume that even if there was a term limit placed on Mitch McConnell, he couldn't handpick his successor. That would be someone, you know, roughly as bad as him, you know, that type of thing. And then kind of the same, the, the other strain of critique is, well, our members of Congress are just too old generally, and we're afraid of becoming a gerontocracy. But again, I think that let's say you've got someone like, mcconnell or nancy pelosi who is very old and then they eventually term limit out i still think that the parties are going to have other old people waiting in the wings you know other party stooges who Mm -hmm. just haven't used up a congressional term yet you know um and i think actually by not letting there be term limits i think we get this scenario actually where the bigwigs can become complacent and can be vulnerable to upsets from people who do actually have energy and fresh ideas. I mean, that's what happened in New York when Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez upset Joe Crowley, was mm-hmm. he took for granted his spot and then he lost to an energized voting block. And so if if Joe Crowley had been kept out of office after two terms. I just think the party machinery would have been working better to find a replacement and that better towed the party line. And I don't think you would have a legislator like AOC in the world where there's term limits.
0: Yeah. Well, and it's also like, um, in, in other things in the world, we, nobody thinks high turnover is a good thing. Yeah. Um, People like a kind of conservatism, you know, small c conservatism to the world. And there is truth to it, you know, someone who does things for longer will be better at it. Um, the, the, I guess the thing is, is that when you have someone in a legislature get better at being a legislator, then, you, you know, they get better at affecting their actual policy views which may not actually be something that comes out in a campaign
1: <laughs> yeah,
0: or, or, or you know technocratic things that will never come out you know no voter is asking about and then can have some real consequences but you know what it is like people like things to generally be the same but then like need but then things need to change like i i one thing i've i've found very interesting watching like from afar the kind of san francisco housing affordability crisis go on where the kind of people who are anti gentrification are in some ways, are trying to affect a form of conservatism for groups that otherwise would not in, be able to enjoy the benefits of more mainstream conservatism.
1: Yeah, a, a sense of uh, neighborhood conservatism.
0: Yeah, but and it's and it's also like if you know this just goes back to housing policy man so if (laughs) there wouldn't be gentrification or not nearly on the scale that it happens if they let um more densely packed uh residential in areas where the people actually want to live like in in most of these towns where you know there's like the run down area that you know you know has a bunch of poor people and they live there because it is run down and people don't want to live there and then somebody comes along and starts to revitalize it. I mean they come and start to revitalize it because the other living options have been exhausted for people of class and I don't know if they would actually want to live in that area. Or if they would prefer to pay, you know, if they were able to pay roughly the same amount but live in an area that, you know, was already good, they would probably do that. So, I don't know. It's just lots of stuff. Very complicated. Lots of stuff. Go. It all goes back to housing.
1: You know, there is there's so much to be said for that. It's uh, kind of the one of the most hierarchical needs that we have is the need for shelter. And so it it shouldn't be surprising that there's a lot of humanitarian and political implications derived from that.
0: Yeah. It is, it is crazy how like maybe not on like the highest order we as a species need shelter. Like, you know, you could survive out in, nature and all that stuff and I mean animals survive without uh, shelter and they're oftentimes more fragile than us, but you know that's then fostered
1: did it didn't leave no trace, so
0: Yeah. But um I think I think shelter is at least very important for human flourishing. Like we could exist without shelter we could survive without shelter but you wouldn't be able to thrive without shelter i
1: mean you say we could survive and and yeah we could but it would just definitely increase the amount of risk associated with our survival like if if i was out in you know if i if there was no housing and i had to be out in the world like yeah i would probably figure out a system to make myself be all right on an average night, but what if it gets really cold and I die of exposure? Well, yeah. What if well, what if somebody wants to come along and kill me and take my shit and I don't have a lock on a door to stop them? A you know, dog like it's just a, it, a dog it's, who it's a numbers out, game.
0: A dog who lives out in the wild probably has a lesser lifespan than a dog who lives in a person's house. Yeah. Like that I mean that I I that is part of just the nature, you know, I'm pretty sure I I don't know. It this is a stupid point that doesn't even really need to be made um, but um, <laughs> or really have any value but um, yeah housing is so very important because we see the people who don't have housing they you know it's really easy to just kind of fall apart as a person to degrade you know to to wear on your body to wear on your mind and just be less effectual as a human being which is really sad to see um yeah like uh yeah there are definitely you know some people when they you know first kind of become homeless you know they are who they were and You know, they're in whatever state, probably whatever just happened was pretty bad. But, you know, they could still be sharp. They can still have everything. But, you know, just the more time you spend out there, the more you're cast aside. You know, who knows? Maybe even it's more of an effect of feeling like a social outcast than actually not having the shelter.
1: I mean, there's myriad... I mean, effects of it that all kind of contribute, but
0: it it doesn't have to be either or. It can be, (laughs) yeah, yeah. and
1: Um, because there's just, you know, that's why housing first policies have proven to be so effective. Is because whatever the initial cause, whatever social dysfunction causes the initial homelessness, it's clear that the homelessness immediately becomes the cause of additional social problems that an individual will experience. And so just being able to give them that stability, I mean, gosh, just to have a place to hang up your clothes so that they can be clean and tidy for a job interview or just to have a place to lay down when you feel tired and you don't have to worry about being on concrete or a park bench or something. It's just an incalculable benefit to be able to have a physical space that you know is yours and you can put your shit and yourself there.
0: Well, yeah, there, there is a definitely a stress that comes about from like not having security and the basic things, whether it be like food, water, and definitely shelter though. Like, because then you just spend all of your time worrying about it and obsessing over it and fearful that you're not going to be able to get it and that can have a real wear on your (laughs) your mental ability and you know your mind and your body you know all that cortisol coursing through your veins like hell you know this is a completely different you know feel but it, it it's similar in that like I have gone on road trips before where I don't have a plan and even sometimes where i you know the plan was to like sleep in my car but i would get like some anxiety about like where am i going to be able to park my car that's going to be safe and it's going to be all right for me to sleep in my car Mm -hmm. um like just you know that's how michael
1: jordan's dad died man
0: really sleeping in his car yeah
1: yeah, he, like, pulled off, and he was at a rest area, went to sleep in his car, and then uh, some guys came up and murdered him. Yeah.
0: Wow. But, yeah, even just that small thing, uh, a problem I had totally brought on to myself and willingly took on was still, like, a stressful thing. Now, what if that was your life? <laughs> just forever generally. out of your
1: control yeah yeah
0: well that that just seems so scary to me anyone whose life is like where so much of it seems outside of their own control that 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 just seems that just sucks or mm-hmm. you know maybe you know i'm gonna guess most people they don't have as much control over their own lives but whatever that equilibrium is is enough of filling enough of the basic needs that nobody questions it mm-hmm. whereas someone else's like kind of shitty equilibrium makes it seem like they don't have control over things and it's put you know the blame is put on them so mm-hmm. um you know i i think <laughs> by using a lot of like you know, financial stability and all that kind of stuff as markers of like, I don't know what it means to be a good person or to have, you know, control over things. I think a lot of people just kind of luck into it. They don't, Mm -hmm. you know, if they had to build it from scratch, like truly the rugged individual individualism thing, they wouldn't be able to do it. But in whatever social, society whatever they they're able to just kind of glide with it
1: yeah I think of it kind of like there's almost this conveyor belt that some people can get put on and it doesn't mean that they're not also trying to work hard or do good stuff while they're on the conveyor belt but they don't have to really think about the direction where they're going and they'll end up successful at each stop but if you all of a sudden that conveyor belt breaks or you get off, like, holy fuck, it is hard to figure out where you're going on your yeah. own.
0: Well, and it's like um there was. So like there's a lot of research where it shows that when kids are kind of expose I mean crazy thing when kids are exposed to things around them they're better more likely to engage in those things as adults so like if like if you're a kid in West Virginia you probably have a lot more innate knowledge about how coal mining works than someone from I don't not know, West California, Virginia. yeah. <laughs> or, you know, someone from Gelsberg has more innate knowledge about maybe farming than someone from the big city because it's around it, and even if you're not directly a part of it, you kind of pick up a bitten piece of it here or there. So if your family when you grow up is not able to effectively navigate life then yeah you can some people are able to rise above that and look outside of their family to find what they need to do but then also that um, there's a good chance that they won't be able to and when they're they just see a family, you know, their family struggling, then, you know, they'll, I mean, it's not even that they they won't aspire to be more, they just won't know how to manage that sort of next level of livelihood or living.
1: Well, to mix metaphors here, I think some people see success as a road that everyone is on individually and there might be hurdles, but you can make the hurdles higher or lower. You can climb them, go around them. But at the end of the day, you're just really on your own path to success independent of everyone else. Whereas Mm -hmm. I see success more as a tunnel that we are all sort of climbing through together and, it matters a lot how wide the hole at the end of the tunnel is because with a narrow hole, yeah, some people are still going to be able to get out. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean that it was accessible for anyone who did the right things and worked hard and, and tunneled well to get out. Yeah, And that's what I think a lot of people don't understand. They see one person get through and they say, well, because one person can. Everyone can. There, there was no barrier at all that would stop other similar people from succeeding. Um, mm-hmm. You mentioned that the, the mayor of Galesburg got into some hot water for saying he didn't see systemic racism as a problem. That also came up within a debate that I watched for our congressional district here in Indiana between Christina Hale and Victoria Sparts, where Victoria Sparts said, because... Barack Obama became president there's there's no systemic racism in America
0: mm. and
1: because she who is an immigrant from Ukraine because she won the Republican primary there's no systemic bias against immigrants in this country mm. and that definitely stems from the the theory of the road right where I am just walking along, and if I can make it, that proves that anyone can make it. But I just don't think that's an accurate way to look at status attainment, at least within a modern United States context.
0: It is almost like, you know, I can, in a good faith way, I can see how individuals can kind of, like, in a weird, humble way, see that, like, you know, see themselves as just ordinary people and like, well, if I can do this, then other people can do this. Whereas there's a lot of things that a lot of people can't really do. Yeah. Like, and like, or aren't good at.
1: (laughs) I understand it. I think it almost boils down to what you believe in more strongly psychology or sociology, because psychology is all about figuring out the individual conditions that make us who we are And then sociology takes a step back and looks at everyone and says, okay, why are things the way they are? And how do people interact within this system? It'll come as no surprise to any of you that I've always favored sociology. It's always been so much more interesting to me. Um, And I think that that does inform how I view these other issues as well. Um, Because if one person does something bad... Maybe you can say, okay, yeah, that's a choice and they made the wrong choice. But if 80 million people are doing the same bad thing, it's more persuasive to me to ask what conditions lead such a vast amount of people to do this thing. But some people will really just sit there and say, nope, 80 million individual unconnected bad choices, which is ludicrous to me. But that's what some people really prefer to examine it through.
0: Yeah. I also, this is this is a different conversation. But when are we gonna have grand unified social sciences? Like, <laughs> when is everybody gonna come together? Like, hey guys, we're all studying the same shit. Um, when are we gonna like collaborate?
1: <laughs>
0: because you yeah, know, we I, have- mean, I feel
1: like that was that was a big emphasis when i was in school was interdisciplinary but it really how it's done in practice is a lot of lip service and they still are pretty disparate but
0: yeah well i mean it's like you know uh you know like let's just say you know you study someone going to the water fountain You know, just something so small like that, you know, the psychologist is trying to think about what individual things were happening in the mind of that person when he decided to go and do that. Then the sociologist is like, what is the social cues that go around with and how do they interact with other people while getting water at the water fountain? then the economist is like what are the market incentives of this person going to the water fountain versus getting the water bottle or you know something like that then the anthropologist is like what what enabled this culture to come to this moment at this time with the values that they have and then it's like what if we brought that all together
1: Yeah. I mean, it's it's a worthwhile trajectory. And it's so obvious that I I mean, I just can't imagine there's not some people who have already said that and are working towards it, but it's not achieved widespread adoption yet.
0: Well, of course, because, uh, you know, a fair number of academics like to think that, you know, they get they get entrenched in their area and they want to you know they know a lot in their expertise field so they feel like they know a lot and they want to assert that their way is the way to look at things or not even that that like there was a um there was like an economics paper that came out that recently now i don't know all the full details of it but it was like an economic look at the effects of uh you know, rugged individuals in the West, you know, the West of the United States. And, you know, that was an economic analysis that had its own parameters and, you know, way of defining things and all this kind of stuff that was cogent within itself. But then also the idea of the rugged individual in the West has kind of been debunked by history, you know, as a academic field. So all the people were like, um, actually this stuff doesn't exist. And then it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. No, we're doing a different analysis through a different lens and not through the history lens, which is, you know, history living halfway between social science and the humanities. Mm -hmm. Um, So it, it is interesting, especially the bickering that can sometimes result between the disciplines.
1: Yeah, I mean, geez, if you spend, what, like 11 years in higher ed or whatever to get a PhD in something, you you probably can't afford to be constantly asking yourself, like, what if I'm wrong? What if I'm wasting my life? You, you just kind of have to really harden your resolve that you are studying the right thing.
0: Yeah. I did see, uh, it, it is funny how some, uh, disciplines kind of lead to people thinking how, you know, how grand they are. Like, you know, you ever hear, you see a doctor give economic advice.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And it's like people, people who become an expert in one difficult field. Yeah. Sort of buy into the myth of their own superiority and then begin giving, half-baked advice on topics they are not remotely qualified to talk about
0: well and i also feel like economics which is basically
1: the theme of this show right yeah (laughs) well economics
0: and like history are really good like armchair pet projects for really smart people Mm -hmm. because they kind of just exist innately (laughs) and Mm -hmm. if you're smart enough you could just kind of be like "Huh," you know just think about it um So but uh, it is it it is what it is. People be out there. It
1: it is what it is. Yeah. And you know what else is Tenet? What? Christopher Nolan's movie. Um, Yeah. I said I wanted to talk about movies. I still do. Um, (laughs) It 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 came in remarkably under pre-COVID expectations grossing just $20 million in its opening weekend even with an expanded holiday frame because, you know, people just – they want to not go to a theater right now. Mm -hmm. And even when it's open, people aren't necessarily taking advantage of it. And, you know, someone like me who would have definitely seen Tenet in normal times is now staying at home and opting for things that are available digitally or on demand. And so uh, I watched a movie the other day called The Devil All the Time. Did you hear about this, Joe? Netflix original? So it's a movie about these interrelated group of families and 'er ne'er-do-wells on the Ohio-West Virginia border uh, centered around... Joe, I think you would like this movie. I liked this movie a lot, actually. Mm -hmm. Um, Basically, Tom Holland is this kid who is upset when a new pastor comes to town and tom holland kind of sees through his bullshit but his sister doesn't and ends up sort of getting herself into trouble with this new pastor and then tom holland has to uh figure out his next move it's it's this is a movie that i've i've tried to describe to other people and it's really hard to give a plot summary of without giving spoilers because there's so many interconnected threads and there's a little mm. bit of non-linearity which is not really necessary but it is what it is um but it is a really disturbing and violent take on that specific region of the country and Uh, It does not let you down in the thrill department. It's Mm. a really, really dark and well-directed crime thriller. So check that out, Joe. The Devil All the Time, now streaming on Netflix.
0: All the time. Devil. All the... (laughs) 24-7, non-stop. We're doing it. It's like McDonald's.
1: (laughs) But then... um, Something I'm very excited for tonight, Joe, this is what I mentioned earlier as my exciting engagement at eight Uh. o'clock. So the New York Film Festival Uh. has been all digital this year. And as you may remember, if you've been listening to the show or if you read my blog, I covered the virtual South by Southwest Film Festival, which took place on Amazon. As long as you, I think it was free for anyone.
0: Mm -hmm. I'm
1: just signed into my sister's Prime account, so I, I can get it that way. But- Um, the New York Film Festival is not as open as Amazon because they don't have to be because people will pay for it. And so I was able to secure one ticket. uh, Doing any more than one ticket would have been too rich for my blood for the entire (laughs) festival. But I got one ticket to the New York Film Festival premiere screening of Nomadland. And so by the time this episode comes out, I will have seen it. Ask me about it, anyone. But I am very excited for it. It won the biggest prize at Venice and TIFF. And so it is coming into the New York Film Festival with rave expectations, and I am so excited for it. That's good. Joe, the uh, The underlying material may interest you. Mm-hmm. Um, it's based on a nonfiction book oh. about the phenomenon oh. of older Americans who – have not accumulated enough retirement savings to retire, but live in economically disadvantaged areas. So they basically take their life on the road, looking for seasonal work at like targets around the country. Yeah. And other, you know, retail and low skill jobs. Yeah. So, um,
0: yeah, they like drive uh, campers and they like camp out at Amazon fulfillment centers and yeah, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Those... So I
1: know you're you're not always interested in the the most filmy film things but this filmy is a topic film. that I think I I can get you back in on.
0: Yeah. No, that is that is definitely something, you know, these man, those people who, yeah, they don't end up saving enough for retirement which, you know, maybe some people they probably could have um, you know, Work their lives a little bit better. I definitely see those types of people where they could have saved up a little bit more. But, you know, life is hard and all that kind of stuff. But I, you know, it doesn't mean that they should live in squalor. But then they see all these other old people who are out there like having their best years in retirement and they're just living in squalor. That, I mean, that can't be super great.
1: Working and grinding labor
0: yeah but i mean it can be a little bit of an escape to be able to like if you get a shitty camper to be able to travel a little bit work in weird places and then you know pack up and go to another place where you can get a sh- shitty job but you get to go travel a little bit
1: mm-hmm. yeah um there was this story i heard on the radio yesterday oh boy who still listens to the radio Ooh. But it was about uh, FM.
0: Oh, futuristic. And it was,
1: uh, yeah, It was a story about this 89 year old pizza delivery man who basically, you know, he he didn't have retirement money. And so he had to deliver pizzas at 89 years old and a an account on TikTok raised twelve thousand dollars to give him as a tip. And so he was able to get just like a nice little cash infusion Mm -hmm. to uh, help ameliorate his working 30 hours a week at age 89 yeah did you hear about this you're kind of like voice yeah yeah
0: yeah. i heard about it yeah and then a cool story yeah i mean it's a nice is it it just another
1: is it a sad thing where it's like oh man in the wealthiest country in the world we have 89 year olds delivering pizza because yeah it's one of (laughs) those that might be the better take.
0: It's really good that a whole bunch of people came together to help the person that is undeniable, but there is also the dread that that this shouldn't be half this shouldn't have to be a thing that people raise money for. Yes, um, or you know what you know maybe if it was like, oh, we raised twelve thousand dollars to get this thing this guy always wanted in his life, like that would be, you know. That'd be something that'd be heartwarming. That would, you know, nobody would be like, oh, the government should have given him that car that he wanted, or, you know, whatever yeah. it was. But um, no, just, you know, it, or like whenever someone ha- has like a GoFundMe for a medical procedure, it's like, you know, I'm glad all these people came together to help crowdfund this. But what if we just did that? But. It was just taxes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. What if we did the ultimate crowdfund where every month we crowdfund everybody's medical procedures <laughs> that need to happen so that they're mm. not stuck with horrifying debt?
1: If only if only, right?
0: Yeah, wouldn't that be wouldn't that be crazy? Or <laughs> you know, I I oh, w- A lot of people, especially kind of on the left, are very disillusioned with the idea of private health insurance, which is totally reasonable in the context of the United States, because here it sucks. Like you can even you can have health insurance and still get very screwed over by it. And have to owe a lot of money, you know, because you went to the wrong hospital or for whatever reason, the hospital, you went to the hospital that was in network, but the the specific doctor. doctor, Yeah, yeah, like, (laughs) I mean, sometimes I think, what if we, what if we just made some like simpler rules? Like if you show up to a medical facility like the whole medical facility has to be counted as one network and can't be billed separately or have separate billing practices. Like if you're in network, you know, if a hospital crazy, if a hospital is in network, then the whole hospital and everybody there has to be part of that network.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So here, I'll, I'll go ahead and, and take the uh, the more extremist position here, Joe, and sort of a defense of the critique of private health insurance on a more global or ideological level is that with any sort of private insurance, there's going to inherently be bloat in terms of paying for salaries of billing agents and middlemen, and then profit you know there's there's going to have to be some profit baked in that isn't going that's not going to be money going to healthcare treatment it's going to be going to profit so obviously we agree that the US system is shit but it, you know there are better systems available but is any system really going to be that good when there still is that uh, money that is going to have to leak out for those two reasons well i mean
0: The it just doesn't happen in the United States, but sometimes it the the idea, the the ideal scenario is that a private health insurer is better able to manage care and like make things cheaper for them, like make it so that, you know, you going, you know, ideally, you know, be like kind of hounding you like, "Eh, go in for your checkup, do this, do that, instead of just kind of what it is in the United States where they just kind of pick up the bill. But, you know, there are countries like Germany, like most, a uh, fair number of people in Germany have their health and, you know, health care provided through private insurance. Now, there is a rule that hospitals and health insurance providers have to be nonprofits. But then the Netherlands also has um, private health insurance. And then I'm pretty sure those are for profit companies. And... You know, nobody's complaining about the Netherlands health and you know health system, or at least on you know a big macro level. I'm, sh- I mean, everybody complains about their health system, no matter where they are, and yeah, I mean, no if, how even well if there was
1: a lot but, of complaints about the Netherlands health system, would we hear about it?
0: Right, but or let's put it this way: nobody, when talking about health systems, is like, no, the Netherlands is a bad example of how to do things. Um, but It's more so that you can't just kind of let insurance go hog wild. Like there has to be other checks in place. And I've been like trying to tease apart like, you know, like the incentives and like, because under most. It's like a, you know, it's a compounding factor where there's like three or four things all going in at the same time and they all create these weird incentives that other you know in other markets they just don't exist um but I haven't fully teased that apart but then if you know that gets teased apart you could be like oh you know you could in a technocratic way be like oh we're going to have these rules and then these rules but you know it what to do politically that's a different question or you know what an ideal system is that's another question but what could be done is, you know, kind of what that would be looking at.
1: Yeah. um, You could, or you could just do single payer. (laughs) Well, then also single payer
0: can get complicated. And then it's also like, do you pay on a per service fee? But then, then it also still has the demand of, you know, doing more services and then all that, you know, there even with just single payer, you know, you you get rid of the administrative part, but then there's also then the, you know, the rest of the healthcare system that's also expensive. But, you know,
1: yeah, I mean, it's, it's not a panacea and there's myriad solutions that we need. One that um, is kind of interesting to me is Mike Braun, who in general, I think, is kind of a shitty senator from my state of Indiana. He's got this bill out. That basically would make it so that healthcare providers have to disclose prices before you know what you're getting into. Like, you know, there's basically a menu of service options. And Mm -hmm. he's got this theory that the transparency alone will cut prices by like 50% or something ridiculous, which I don't necessarily agree with. But the underlying idea of, requiring prices to be public knowledge, I actually think is really good and would be a step in the right direction.
0: Oh yeah. Like I, I think I remember in our high school economics class, we watched this thing that, you know, it did some profiles on some healthcare systems out in the world. And like in Japan, there's like the big government book of how much little thing costs and how much you can charge for it. So, yeah, healthcare is a weird field.
1: It's something where I, I mean, I, I kind of have my opinions about it, but I will admit, you ladies and gentlemen, I i don't have the greatest research knowledge on it. I haven't read any good healthcare books on, you know, the nature of healthcare and what's needed to reform and what works well and theories. So if, if anyone's got any recommendations for healthcare books, I'm very interested. Let me know. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah, yeah, I still yeah. like reading books.
0: Yeah. We're doing that. Um, speaking of reading books, again, reminder, um, at some point we're going to talk about 1 billion Americans. So. Next
1: time. If I guarantee it, then it'll happen. Or unless we want to do that other episode that th- we talked about.
0: Let's do the other episode.
1: All right. Now it's a secret. Now they have to tune in to find yeah, out. Yeah. Tune means.
0: in. Um, and I think since we're about reaching the uh, our market, Evan, you got anything else you want to talk about?
1: I want to give a shout out to the listeners who responded to our adequately informed scavenger hunt last week with the the steamer hats or the steamboat hats, whatever it was we said. <laughs> Thank you so much to listener Alex and listener Emily for responding. You are the grand champions.
0: you You listened and responded. <laughs> Man, so, um, I, I can't tell you yeah. how many things that I listen to And then they're like, hey, respond to us And then I'm like, I don't have anything to say
1: <laughs> Did you do the uh, the Vox I survey? I,
0: I didn't do this one I've done them in the past I, I haven't did done, this one I haven't done the most recent one I give them money so That's good, uh, that's more than I do Yeah, like um, I was like, shit, I get so much value out of this free thing I mean I listen to their podcast all the time I read their articles Um, yeah I I guess I could throw them some money (laughs) (laughs) it would be fair so
1: so that's all I had to say thank you Uh to our listeners we love our listeners if we ever make some merch you'll get a free thing
0: yeah thing (laughs) (laughs) well anyway um i think that is about this episode of adequately informed um let us know if you like this format the kind of more free form thing going on where it's not as uh segmented as our other the 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 more traditional format um we're kind of at a loss this week wow we're always innovating
1: we're we're always trying to try new things this is this is what you do you innovate but yeah. if it sucked, then let us know so that we can not do it again.
0: <laughs> right. But um. so anyway, traditional thanks. Thanks to you for listening. Thanks to Anthony Hish for making the music. Anyway, my name's Joe Hicks.
1: And mine's Evan Kelly.
0: And we hope that you've been
1: adequately informed.